The following sermon, entitled The Command Not to Kill, was preached on the morning of February 20th, 2022 at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, we will read the whole of the chapter. We do so in connection with Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism and its treatment of the Sixth Commandment. Genesis 4, this is the inspired Word of our God. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? He said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven driven me out this day from the face of the earth. And from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east side of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and and Irad begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives, The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other, Zillah. And Ada bare Jabal. He was the father of 
such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. We end our Scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 40. Lord's Day 40. What doth God require in the Sixth Commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge, also that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Wherefore also the magistrate is armed with a sword to prevent murder. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that He abhors the causes thereof, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that He accounts all these as murder. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No, for when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards Him, and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good even to our enemies. As Christians, we live in a murder-filled world. This has always been the case. For as we have just read already within the first family God ever put on this earth, there was murder. We see this all throughout biblical history when we scan the pages of it. We find many men who were guilty of this sin, whether it was Lamech, whether it was Joab, whether it was David, whether it was Herod, and the list could go on and on. And so too, we see this in the history of this world, which records many massacres, many killings, much violence. And we see this still today when we read the newspapers. They are full of, the of accounts of the unlawful killing of another man or of another woman. 
And we see this especially in the central event in all of human history. The death of Jesus Christ. For though it was sovereignly directed by the hand of our God to accomplish our salvation, at the same time, it was the unlawful killing of an innocent man. It was a murder. But though that is true of the world around us, God calls us as Christians to be different. And He calls us to love one another. To love the neighbor that He's placed in our lives. That's the positive requirement that comes out of this Sixth Commandment. As we know, every commandment has the negative aspect. And here it's very simply, thou shalt not kill. And when it speaks of killing, it's speaking specifically of murder. The unlawful killing of another. But now along with that is the implied positive. Love the neighbor. And love him as to his person, as to his life and his welfare. That's the calling that comes to us as Christians that we might be antithetical, that we might be different than the world around us and show ourselves to be the children of our God. But here's the problem. By nature, we are no different, are we? For by nature, we hate God and we hate the neighbor. And thus, in and of ourselves, there's no way for us to keep this commandment. In and of ourselves, we will only ever be guilty of that same sin that we find all around us in the world. And that then points us to our need for our Savior Jesus Christ. For in Him alone there's forgiveness for this sin. At the same time, it's only by the power of the Gospel that we can ever make a small beginning in a life of obedience to this commandment. So this morning we look at the commandment not to kill. The commandment not to kill. Two points very simply will first be the negative, the prohibition of murder. And second, the positively, the requirement of love. The command not to kill. The prohibition of murder and the requirement of love. If we are going to understand this prohibition against murder, we need to understand why God forbids murder. And the central reason is that God created man in His own image. That's clearly the teaching of the context that from which we read in Genesis. If we back up to Genesis 1, we know the truth of Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 well. There we read, And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Then verse 27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. God created man in His image. That is, there's a certain reflection in man and in his nature of the reflection of the perfections of God. That is, from a certain point of view, we look like God. And now obviously this cannot be a physical resemblance because we know God is spirit. He is invisible. And thus instead, this is a spiritual resemblance that 
was true of Adam when God created him. And that then serves as the the underlying principle, the foundational truth upon which the sixth commandment is built. And we say that in light of such passages as Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. There we read, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For, here comes the reason why this is wrong. In the image of God made He man. So it's explicitly connecting the fact that God made man in His own image with the prohibition against murder, against the unlawful taking of another person's life. But now that's easy enough to state. But this requires further explanation. Because the question becomes, how does this apply to all men head for head even though we know that man lost that image of God at the fall. That is indeed the teaching of Scripture. Yes, God created man in His own image in righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. But when Adam fell into sin, he lost those virtues. He lost that reflection of the perfections of God. Which is to say, he lost the image of God. But now if man no longer has the image and the Sixth Commandment is based on the fact that God created man in His image, does that now mean that well, if someone's unregenerate, I can now take their life? Nothing wrong with that? Does this now mean that this commandment only applies to those who are Christians who have been restored? Who have had the image of God restored to them? Of course it cannot mean that. But how are we to understand this? Well, the key is that every man, even after the fall, retains the capacity and the potential to bear that image of our God. For in creating man in his own image, included in that was the fact that God created man with the capacity to bear, to carry that image. And specifically, that means He created us as Rational, moral, and religious creatures. Rational creatures. We have the ability to reason, to think, and to will. Moral creatures. That is, we have the, an understanding of the difference between right and wrong. And religious creatures. That is, we have a sense of the divine and a, an inclination to worship at least something. And because God created us as a rational, moral, and religious creature, that means man has the capacity to bear the image of God. And importantly, man retains that even after the fall. Man remains a rational, moral, and religious creature. And therefore, there is the possibility that the image of God be restored to man. And exactly for that reason, This language here in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 still applies to everyone. We all murder is forbidden exactly because man was created in the image of God. Now, what that means very practically is that there is a certain dignity and sanctity to human life. Dignity in the sense of worth, sanctity in the sense of human life being set apart. It's different than the life of 
the other creatures of this earth. And that then is the reason for this commandment. Why God forbids us to take the life of another. So then the question becomes, why then are we still guilty of this? That is, what's the allurement? If we know that human life is set apart, why is it man would ever still take the life of another? How does Satan tempt us? What's the bait that he holds out? And all that is to say, what's in our hearts when we murder our fellow brethren? To get right at the heart of it, I do believe there are two main lies that the devil convinces of, convinces us of, that stand behind all of the murderous thoughts, words, and deeds that we commit. On the one hand, the devil seeks to convince us of the lie that anything that we do not approve of is sin punishable by death. At the heart of that is, the devil wants us to believe we are like God. And really, I should have said that first. That's the overarching lie that we are like God and the devil wants us to convince, wants to convince us that's true in two main ways. On the one hand, that anything that we do not approve of is a sin that's punishable by death. Now we recognize that is true of our God. He is the divine lawgiver. He is the one who decides what's right and wrong. And when we fail to meet His standard, that's a sin, which sin is indeed punishable by death. But now the devil wants us to think, well, that's true of us. That if somebody does something that I do not approve of, that I do not like, if somebody wrongs me in some way, that's what defines sin. And such sin is punishable with death. That on the one hand is a lie. On the other hand, the lie of the devil is that we are like God in the sense of, I now have the right to carry out that punishment. And now again, we see this is true of our God because He's not only the divine lawgiver, He's also the supreme judge of heaven and earth. He not only has the right to punish sin, but He will certainly punish all sin that's been committed against Him. But now again, the devil wants us to think it's true of us. That you have the right to inflict some sort of punishment upon others who commit some wrong against you. Or yes, you might show mercy from time to time and spare this individual or that individual. But in the end, you have every right to punish anyone who has done something you do not like. Those are the lies the devil wants us to believe. And thus the occasion for murder is Anytime somebody commits some wrong against us, whether that's a perceived wrong or an actual wrong. And note well, I said the occasion. I'm not yet to the cause of murder. The occasion is when I'm convinced that somebody has done something wrong against me. Somebody cut me off in traffic. Somebody spoke to me in a way that I did not like. Somebody failed to ask me how my day was going. 
And we could give example after example after example of instances in which we reach the conclusion, so-and-so did me some wrong. And what stands behind all of that is our own sinful desires. Our desire to be served. And that comes out, for example, in James chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? That is, where does all these sins against the Sixth Commandment come from? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? And lusts here is not talking simply about lustful desires against the Seventh Commandment, but any sort of inordinate desire. Any sort of sinful longing that we have, whether it's a longing for something that's inherently sinful or whether it's a longing for something that's legitimate, but that desire has become so all-consuming that we've made an idol out of that thing. We all have in our minds how we expect others to treat us. We all have in our minds what service to me should look like. And then when someone fails to serve us in that way, or if they detract from the respect, the honor, whatever it is that we believe we deserve to have, the conclusion is, they've wronged me. And that then is where anger comes from. The desire for revenge. And that really is the cause of all murder. That's what the catechism teaches us in question and answer 106. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. And forbidding murder, God teaches us that He abhors the causes thereof, such as envy, hatred, anger, and the desire of revenge. And that He accounts all these as murder. Speaks of the causes of murder. And what stands behind all these is the proud notion that if anyone has done something I do not approve of, that's a sin, and it's punishable by death, and I have the right to punish them. That's where murder comes from. Regardless of what form it takes. Whether it involves the actual killing of another individual or the more subtle forms that our catechism speaks of when it refers to words and gestures and even thoughts. There are many different ways that we can be guilty of sins against the Sixth Commandment. And in all traces, it can all be traced back to the lie, you should be like God. And we see that when we look at concrete examples. We see that, for example, when we look at the history recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4 and the murder that Cain committed against his brother Abel. And perhaps here, it's helpful to work backwards. We worked forwards through it already. Now let's start at the murder and work our way back to where we started. We know that Cain murdered Abel. Verse 8, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And if we ask, why? Where did this come from? Well, the cause was Cain's sinful anger. That's the end of verse 5. And Cain was very wroth. That is, he was angry and his countenance fell. His heart was full of fury against his brother. And we ask, well, why was he angry? 
because he believed he had been wronged in some way. And that's the context. Both brothers had brought their offerings before God. God had respect unto Abel's offering, but unto Cain's offering, He did not have respect. And that's where Cain believed he had been wronged. He did not approve of that. His thought was, certainly God should receive, should accept this offering that I bring from the fruit of my own hands. But he thought he was, and thus he thought he was wronged. And because we see him full of anger, because we see him slaying his brother, we can trace all of that back to the lie of the devil who had convinced Cain, you should be the one who's God. That is, if anyone does anything you do not approve of, that you do not like, that's sin punishable by death. And you have the right, Cain, to carry out that punishment. Those are the dynamics of murder. Do you recognize that in your heart, child of God? Why do we lash out at others? Why do we sometimes speak such cruel and unkind words? Well, it's because there's anger in our hearts. There's bitterness. There's the desire for revenge. And if we ask, well, where does all that come from? It's because we've convinced ourselves, yes, I should be like God. Yes, if somebody does something that I believe is wrong, that I feel wronged in any way, that person needs to be punished and I have the right to carry it out. That's the bait. That's how the devil wants to tempt us. That's how he seeks to allure us into this sin. That means in order to combat the sin, we need to get right at the root of it. We need to recognize the lie of the devil. Because we are not like God. Jehovah God is God alone. And that means on the one hand, to battle the, to confront the one half of the lie, sin is not ultimately against you and me. Because somebody did something that we do not approve of does not make them worthy of death because sin is ultimately against God. That's the teaching, for example, of Psalm 51, verse 4, where David says, Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And what's so striking about what David is saying there in Psalm 51, verse 4, is the context in which he's saying that. He has just committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He's committed the sin of the murder of Uriah the Hittite. He sinned against those individuals in different ways, but yet he confesses that ultimately sin is against God. He's the one who decides what's right and wrong, and it's when we do that which is offending and provoking to him, that's how we define sin. 
And it's because we sin against His holiness and His majesty. This sin is punishable by death. So we need to use that truth to battle the lie of the devil on the one hand. And on the other hand, the truth that we need to remember and cling to to battle the other lie is vengeance belongs to the Lord. The devil wants us to believe vengeance belongs to you. You have the right to inflict punishment to make that person pay because they've wronged you. And God says no. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And thus we're not to try to take matters into our own hands when we've truly been wronged in some way. So hopefully that helps us see through the lie of the devil. Helps us to recognize the bait for what it is. Worthless. But now before we move on to the hook, the consequences for this sin against the Sixth Commandment, there are two other characteristics of this sin against the Sixth Commandment that come out in this specific history that are worth calling attention to. There's really no good place to put this in the sermon, so we put it between going through the dynamics of the sin and the lie of the devil and before we get to the consequences. Two additional aspects regarding sins against this commandment. First, we are most prone to murder those who are closest to us. And that comes out in this history because Cain slew his brother. And the text wants us to see that. How striking this is. Verse 8 we read, And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And if we've been paying attention at all, we already know these two are brothers. These are the only two other people on earth other than Adam and Eve. Of course, they're brothers. We know that already. So why then does the Spirit add that phrase, his brother, twice within the same verse? And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. It's reminding us, it's exposing that the ones we are most inclined to murder are the ones who are closest to us. Our family members. Our fellow members of the church. Children and young people, how do you treat your siblings? Why is it that you will say things to them, perhaps hit them, and treat them in ways that you would never do to someone else. It's a sin against the Sixth Commandment. And it ought not be that way. And the same holds true within our marriages. Husbands, how are we treating our wives? And wives, how are we speaking to our husbands? Why is it that we can be so cruel, so hateful 
to the person with whom we share a one flesh union. It ought not be that way. It ought to be that those who are closest to us are the ones who know and enjoy our love the most. We need to see this sinfulness that is a part of our lives. Because that's one thing that comes out in this history that we're most inclined to kill those who are closest to us. The other thing, the second thing that comes out is how often we take our anger out on someone who does not deserve it. And that comes out in this history when we ask the question, whom was Cain ultimately angry with? It's not his brother. It's Jehovah God. Because from Cain's perspective, who wronged him? It was the God who did not respect His offering. But yet Cain knows he cannot get back at God. And so instead, he takes his anger out on the most convenient target that presents itself, namely his good-for-nothing brother. And is that not true of us? We have a bad day at work, men. And who bears the brunt of it? Not our colleagues, but our family. We have an awful day in the home. And who do we take that out on? Our children. Our husbands. May well be we're angry with God ultimately because of His providential arranging of our lives. Or maybe we're angry at ourselves. I messed up. I I didn't do something. It didn't go how I wanted it to go. But then we take that out on those, on others. Whatever convenient target presents itself and is foolish enough to walk into the crosshairs of our anger and our desire for revenge. But again, it ought not be that way. And now we bring these examples up to help us see our own sinfulness. So that none of us can walk away this morning saying, I'm good with respect to the Sixth Commandment. I have no problems there. We need to see our own sinfulness. And we need to see the seriousness of it. We need to see the the dreadful consequences that is the hook that does stand behind the temptations of the devil. He wants to cover up the hook. He wants to say, no consequences here. But Scripture teaches us there are indeed consequences. We can mention four, all of which come out of this passage. First, there are temporal consequences. That was true for Cain. For Cain, that's what we read about in verse 11 and 12. Now art thou cursed from the earth. Verse 12, And when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. It's going to be hard for you, Cain, even harder now to bring forth the fruit of the ground. That was a temporal consequence for Cain. The same can hold true for us. And the primary one would be all manner of corporal punishment. 
whether it's a spanking for our children when they murder their sibling, or whether it's the state inflicting some sort of punishment, whether it's a fine or time in prison. There are many other examples. There are temporal consequences. Secondly, there are relational consequences. The sin destroys relationships. It was true for Cain. No longer could he have a relationship with his brother. That was now impossible because he'd killed his brother. But it went beyond merely his relationship with his brother. It was true of his relationship to his family and to the society as a whole. For we read the second half of verse 12, that he would be a fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. He was cut off from society. And that points to the fact that sins against the, seventh, against the sixth commandment ruin relationships. They disrupt communion so that whereas before there was sweet fellowship and friendship, you throw in sin against the sixth commandment and now there's bitterness, there's envy, there's hostility. There are relational consequences to this sin. Third, there can be generational consequences so that our children and grandchildren walk in this same sin. We see that here in this history. For if we continue reading on in Genesis 4 and read about the descendants of Cain, we come to Lamech, who not only slew a man, but even boasted about it. Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. We see that Lamech is walking in the same sin as his forefather, Cain. And now he's become hardened in the sin. He's boasting about his sinfulness. And that points us to the possibility of generational consequences that when we walk in this sin impenitently, we can expect that our children are going to follow suit. And the old adage is true. The sins we walk in, our children will run in. But now though there are temporal consequences, though there are relational consequences, though there are generational consequences, we all recognize that what's most serious are the spiritual consequences. For God will punish this sin with death. Those spiritual consequences come out here in the chapter that we read. God's Word to Cain after he slayed his brother. Verse 10, and he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And what's his punishment? Verse 14, Cain says, Thou hast driven me out of this driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And that gets at the heart of it. God will hide His face from those who walk in this sin. And understand that's a punishment far worse than simply being annihilated so that we cease to exist. God sets His face against those who walk in this sin. That as He pours out His wrath and His fury upon them, that's what we deserve on account of this sin. 
And all of this serves as a warning to us. But now if we are ever going to heed this commandment, we need something more than what we've gone over so far. We need something more than understanding why this commandment's wrong. We need something more than understanding the dynamics of this sin and being able to combat the lies of the devil. We need something more than being able to recognize the consequences for this sin and the, the dreadful punishment that will come upon us. Because the only power whereby we ever can keep this commandment is the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love that He has shown to us that we might love one another. That brings us to the positive aspect of the Sixth Commandment, the requirement of love. That's what God calls us to do and to show here in the Sixth Commandment. That's the teaching of the Catechism in question answer 107 especially. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to love the neighbor that is. We're to desire the neighbor's good. We're to have a steadfast determination to perform that good. And we're actually to carry out that greatest good for the neighbor. And the catechism elaborates on what that looks like. It speaks of showing patience to the brother, to the neighbor. That is, not being angry when we are wronged in some way, but being slow to anger, ready to bear with the weaknesses and infirmities of others. It speaks, for example, of peace. That is, rather than being one who's a brawler, one who's a striker, we are to live peaceably with our neighbor as much as we are able, even willing to be wronged for the sake of peace. It mentions also meekness. Rather than that pride of thinking anything that I do not like is punishable with death, meekness is that humility that recognizes our own low estate, that recognizes ourselves as sinners before the face of God, that views others as better than ourselves. The Catechism speaks of mercy. That is, compassion and pity upon those in their need. In a desire to lift them up out of that need. The Catechism speaks of showing all kindness towards Him. That is, we seek to do the neighbor good, but not only is this something that's in our hearts, that's what the Catechism is describing there, this is to, come, this is to manifest itself in the way that we live our lives. And that's what the Catechism mentions next. It says that we're to prevent His hurt as much as in His lies. And notice it does not merely say that we ourselves are never causing the neighbor hurt, but that we seek to prevent His hurt. We try to protect and defend and guard the neighbor from any harm that would come upon him. And finally, it adds that we do good even to our enemies. We're to do good from a physical point of view, seeking the life, the welfare, the well-being of the neighbor. We're to do good from a spiritual point of view, seeking ultimately their salvation, that highest good. And notice those last words as well, even to our enemies. Not just to our brothers, whether they are brothers by blood, 
by the blood of our parents or brothers by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not just to our neighbor, to anyone and everyone that God providentially places in the pathway that is our lives, but even to our enemies. To those who hate you, who oppose you, who do in fact wrong you in various ways. And we see then that this is indeed a high calling. When we understand the Sixth Commandment, we can see how the New Testament Scriptures say that the whole of God's law can be summarized in this one word, love the neighbor. And as soon as we see just how high the calling is, we recognize how far short we fall of it. And that, that then drives us to our Savior Jesus Christ. To the only One in whom there is a possibility of making a small beginning in this commandment. Because when we look to Christ, we find first of all the motivation for heeding this commandment. And the motivation is thankfulness, gratitude for the salvation that we have in Christ and for the love of Jesus Christ in earning that salvation. And oh, how much He loved us and still loves us. And Scripture everywhere emphasizes that truth. Scripture speaks of that in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also love the church. And how did He show that love? He gave Himself for it. He gave Himself to be born of a woman. He gave Himself to suffer all of His life long. He gave Himself ultimately to die on the cross. And that especially shows us the love of our Savior. John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And it's ultimately Christ who lays down His life on our behalf. It was His love that made Him willing to endure the punishment we deserve for our sin. Because hopefully we all recognize we are no different than Cain. We too are guilty of sins against this commandment. And therefore, like Cain, we deserve to be spiritual fugitives and vagabonds. We deserve to have God hide His face from us. But in His love for us, Christ bore that punishment especially at the cross of Calvary where for three hours of darkness, Jesus Christ did not know the face of God's love and favor. But all He knew was the face of God's wrath. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. And if that doesn't emphasize His love enough, 
Remember, He did this for His enemies. Not for His brethren from a natural point of view, because Scripture teaches us that we were by nature children of wrath. He did not do this for some random stranger that He saw beaten up sitting alongside the road. But He did this for His enemies. For those who were opposed to Him. That's the testimony of Scripture when it tells us in Romans 5, verse 8, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is how He accomplished our salvation. This is how He brought reconciliation. And this then is the motive for now seeking to love the brother. It's thankfulness, gratitude for this wondrous gift. That's what drives obedience to this commandment. But now not only do we look to Christ for the motivation, we also look to Him for the power to make that small beginning. We look to Him because it's ultimately Christ through His Spirit that works this love in our hearts. Again, that's the testimony of Scripture. 1 John 4, verse 19, we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. This comes out in Galatians chapter 5, which sets before us the fruit of the Spirit. That is, that fruit that the Spirit works in our hearts. What's the first thing mentioned? It's love. Love for God. Love for the neighbor. God works it in our hearts. And we are now to love Him and to love the neighbor as an expression of our love for Him. 1 John 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And again, we love one another ultimately by looking to our Savior Jesus Christ. How is it we are ever going to be willing to suffer wrong? Because as we we have shown, when I conclude I've been wronged, what swells within my heart is that desire to pay that person back. But yet Christ calls us and says, Whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn unto him also the other. If we ask how are we ever going to do that, it's by looking to Christ. Yes, there are other things. Recognizing vengeance belongs to the Lord. Recognizing that God can use even this for my good. As Joseph said, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. But fundamentally, it's by looking to Christ and recognizing He was willingly wronged. He was sinned against. And He did not lash out. He did not He restrained this need to lash out at the moment because He had to accomplish our salvation. How are we ever going to forgive someone who's wronged us? By looking to Christ. By recognizing it was on account of my sins that He had to go to the cross 
And because I've been forgiven, I'm not going to be like that unforgiving servant in the parable of Jesus who though he had been forgiven much was unwilling to let go the small debt that the neighbor had accrued against him. What's going to make us willing to serve others, to show love given any opportunity that we have? It's love for Christ. And the recognition that I can show my love to Christ by showing that love to one another because He taught, He told us as much. He told us that in so much as you feed and clothe and show love to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And because I love Christ, I'm not going to love one another, the others around me. What's going to make us willing to love one another in the most humble and demeaning ways possible. It's by looking to Christ. By looking to the One who told us in Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. That is, not to be served, but to minister. That is, to serve. To give His life for ransom to others. We look to the One who was willing to get on His hands and His knees to wash the feet of His disciples. And then to perform a far greater act of humiliation and going to the cross where He accomplished a far greater and more important washing so that we might be washed from all of our sins with His blood. And it's recognizing that that makes us willing now to humble ourselves and to serve one another. What will make us willing to love even our enemies. The knowledge that He loved me while I was yet His enemy. That's what makes us willing to bless them those who curse us, to do good to them who hate us, to pray for them that despitefully use us and persecute us. The power, beloved, is in the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that He has accomplished. And not just His life as an example. That's not the power. But it's the fact that we are the objects of that love. That He did all this for you and for me. And because we are thankful for that salvation, and because He now works in our hearts by His Spirit, Let us now seek to be different than the world around us. Putting away all that murder and all the different forms that it takes. Instead, showing love to one another as an expression of our love for Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy great love wherewith Thou hast loved us. We thank Thee for the love of our Savior Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with love and work in us both to will and to do according to this commandment. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.